0: preserve our time together. Let's uh, read now, and you read in your copy. I'll give you some verse cues. 1 Corinthians 1.10. We'll read all the way through verse 17, uh, and then we'll begin to uh, dig in today. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Verse 12, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, uh, so that no one, verse 15, would say you were baptized in my name. Verse 16, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Stop right there. Now, as we've begun the study, you've seen our title that we've labeled it, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. In particular, this section right here, as he moves into the first series of admonitions for the church, has to do with unity. It's God's desire to have a healthy church, primary importance to Jesus, who gave himself for it. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit then brings Paul to focus on unity. And as we've worked our way through, of course, we realize that there are a lot of things he could have started with and some of those things seem to be, perhaps in our uh, evaluation, much more serious or much more grave. But I think that it gives us a, great, a right idea of perspective as we begin this section uh, together, as we work through this healthy church section of First Corinthians, that Paul begins with unity. The problem, he said here, is problem, disharmony, division in the church. He wants to teach on unity, but he has to address some problems. And so, in focusing on unity in this first section from chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 2, He has to deal with errors in regard to division, and that's a concern because therein lies really the credibility of testimony, and there lies the joy of ministry together, all in these things are related to unity. In verse 10, we saw Paul exhort them. We saw this last time. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, uh, that word exhort, parakaleo, it is a word we're familiar with, perhaps, as it it deals with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside. But what Paul is using it for is basically this. It's uh, typical of Paul in his his, uh, beginnings. Uh, of his uh, address to people. The meaning is, I'm gonna come alongside and say. Now, we translate that exhort, uh, we can translate that admonish, it's those types of uh, phrases that we understand Paul using when he gets ready to correct. And he just simply reminds them that he considers himself their brother in faith, and he reminds them that they are brothers and sisters together in faith. So he says, I exhort you, brethren, and then Paul makes the appeal, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that appeal is very important, it is based on what we said uh, that we learned earlier in 1 Corinthians verse one, chapter 1, verse 9. Just look back there quickly with your eyes. God is faithful, and then right here you see it, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul then is calling and making his appeal based on what they've already learned, which was uh, the sovereignty of God calls believers into fellowship with Jesus. And the word fellowship talks about a common life, and that becomes the premise on which Paul makes his exhortation to unity. It's a very important premise. It is the undergirding of everything he's going to say about unity. As Paul is saying, first of all, I'm ex- exhorting you on the basis of the name, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really important. Anytime we see in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, understand that's the great primary reason for proper behavior in the church. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we not bring it into disrepute. So. Anything that's called upon the Christian to do, it is the fact that this is what the Lord Jesus Christ desires. So it is in his name and for his sake that we do it. John 14, 15 really makes it very clear, doesn't it? It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The bottom line is it's all about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about reflecting on him. And as we saw, whenever you see the term name in relation to the Lord or to God, it means all that he is and all that he wills. So according to Paul now, as he starts with this very important admonition to the church at Corinth, he says, your Christian life reflects Jesus Christ. We spent a lot of time on that last time. So you take care of that here specifically in your relationship with church people. This church, this local assembly right here reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in as much as it reflects the right relationship between people because that reflects on the Lord. Now last time we began to look at the specifics of what Paul wants the church at Corinth to do and every other church of course to do, and as I said before, and I'll say this again uh, probably numerous times today, get this cord out of the way, that uh, we're going to take each command separately because they're very important. And with each command are a series of applications, more applications than we can make in the time that we have. So understand, that as I go through, I may not answer your question directly, or I may touch on something that you begin to think about and you have, want some further answers. Let me first of all encourage you to continue to look to the Word of God. Study, cross-reference, and as you do that, you're going to be able to come to your answer. And if you don't come to the full answer you'd like, I'd like it, the uh, opportunity to answer that as we do from time to time in, with a Q&A sessions. You just email it to me and we'll include it in our Q&A time because the, the passage here includes so many things that we could talk about. Now look at verse 10 again. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now that's key to the idea here in the verse, that you all agree. Literally, it means all say the same thing. Now, we kind of laughed about that last time because we just think about that in reality. Is it possible for everybody in the church to all say the same thing? And uh, what I said was this. It doesn't really matter if we don't think it can happen. That's the standard, isn't it? And so if we're not all saying the same thing as we looked at it last time, and we're going to look at it, review it quickly here, it just means we're not coming up to the standard. It doesn't mean God's lowering it, okay? So key to the area, do you all agree, all say the same thing? It has to do with what we saw last time is vocalized. What's spoken out loud? Because there's very little more devastating to a church than somebody to vocalize, well, I don't know what they say, or I don't know what they teach, but I'm convinced of this. Or, uh, I don't know what the church has decided to do, but I disagree. And when that happens, a discord is vocalized, and you get people splitting off in little factions, and Paul says that's not to happen. We've got to say the same thing. Now, we made a couple applications from the Word, and I'll just briefly touch on them, illustrating what Paul's talking about when he talks about saying the same thing. What do you mean we have to say the same thing? Well, number one, we have to agree to vocalize the same thing doctrinally. When we vocalize, we need to vocalize doctrinal agreement. And we saw a couple of illustrations, Philippians 3.16, a very good illustration of that. Paul says to them, keep on living by the same standard to which we have attained. In other words, he says to the Philippians, look, you know the doctrine you've been taught. Now all you need to, to do now is behave yourself consistent with that truth. You understand what we've told you, then go ahead. And Paul many times will say, and if you do anything else, the Lord will show you that that's not the way. This is what I teach in every church. So Paul has to deal with this on a regular basis. We also saw from Romans 16, 17, a verse that perhaps more directly related to this issue. It says this, now I urge you, brethren, that's the same opening wording, I urge you, I come alongside you, I admonish you, together with you, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances, mark this, contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Now, of course, we talked about that at length last time, we won't do it again, but just this, we're not talking about little shades of, of distinction, but when it comes to major issues, Paul says, when you speak out loud, you all must say the same thing. And then we saw number two, it has to do with agreement with leadership. The Lord has set up a plan in leadership in the church, and when we vocalize, we need to vocalize agreement with that leadership. And there are, of course, always differences of opinion, which we saw last time, difference of preferences. That's understandable. But whether you have a single elder with deacons who serve the church, like Timothy in Ephesus, or perhaps Apollos in Corinth uh, after Paul's departure, or you have multiple elders in a church, if you're going to have a biblical pattern, then you've got to have a biblical pattern all the way. And so bottom line is, uh, there were a number of good illustrations, as we said. Uh, and as a footnote, we said this: There's not a lot of scripture in volume in regard to the congregation's role in the church. Most of it is regarding leadership, so that the congregation then, if if the leadership set up biblically, knows what to do. First Thessalonians five twelve was one of those places. It's in a pretty important verse. It says this: But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. Thirteen. That after you and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. We saw that in a biblical model, there are some people who are over you in the Lord, and that means they have the right to make decisions that regard you, and some of those decisions may not be the ones you would have picked. And you're to love them, and you're to you're to respect them, and and then in the end of verse thirteen, it says, "Live in peace with one another." And so Paul's encouragement there is, as we say the same thing, you peacefully agree. You don't stir things up. You don't stir up disagreement. Same type of instruction that we see in 1 Corinthians 1.10. And you're familiar enough, of course, with the church that you know some will not obey that command. Uh, Some people are not going to say the same thing, and they're going to try to stir things up. And so you have verse 14, which says, we urge you, brethren, then admonish the unruly. And so what you have then is you have an elder, or you have elders trying to lead, you have deacons trying to help and to serve, and you're gonna have some people who are unruly, and they're not gonna to submit to that rule. And they have their own ideas, they have their own opinions, they have their own preferences, they're gonna vocalize them, they're not gonna say the same thing, and Paul says they have no right to do that, and you who are submitting to, uh, to that leadership are to go to them, and to do what? You're to admonish them, you're to warn them. Same instruction we saw from Romans 16, 7, 17, which is those who won't listen, turn away from them, okay? So very important instruction, to leadership by way of then overflowing into the congregation and what they're to do. And Paul ends at the, adds at the end of verse 14, he says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So there's going to be some who doubt then, encourage them. There's going to be some who are weak believers, then they're trapped in what they used to do before, or some kind of legalism or whatever. They haven't grown yet, help them grow. And then it says, be patient with everyone. And then we saw Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It really drives the point home by addressing the congregation regarding leadership. It just says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. It couldn't get any more clear than that. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They keep watch. That's what it says. The elder's accountability is to God for you. And that's an accounting of, to God for each individual church member under the elder's care. And then it says, let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So what you have in these two illustrations then is you have an elder, or an elders, in the case may as the case may be, and they rule as under shepherds, underneath the shepherd, Jesus Christ. And the congregation is called to agree with them in what they say. The congregation is to obey, from Hebrews 13, 17, to use the seven, to use the exact word. Obviously, there's not to be a group of people saying, and this is vocalizing outwardly, as Paul just got through saying, uh, well, I know what's, what was decided, but I'm against it, and I think we should do this. That's not to be done, Paul says. Or this is my view, and then you get a little group having your view, That it really is a violation of the essence and the spirit of 1 Corinthians 1.10, and it's a direct violation of the statement, all say the same thing, and a direct violation of 1 Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews 13, and a number of other places that talk about this setup. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.10, as we get into it, we see that unity was a primary thing. The first thing that needed to be dealt with, and so we read, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And so you can hear some of the church in Corinth say this, okay, okay, I understand. I won't say anything else out loud, but I'm not changing my mind, all right? And you understand that that can happen. And if the period came right at the end of all say the same thing, then that could be trouble. But Paul doesn't stop right there. Now look back at verse 10. And that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now Paul says, not only are you to say the same thing, but there to be no divisions. That's the word schismata, it's a noun. You understand the word, I think you've seen it in root form and other things that we use in the English. And the word can have, in the literal sense, meaning to tear a garment. Uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 9, verse 16, when an unshrunk patch is put on an old garment, the garment will tear, you remember that, uses the same word. The word can also be used in a metaphor sense. It draws, of course, on the understanding of tearing a garment, or tearing a net, or tearing a sail, or whatever it may be. It's just talking about a difference of opinion. Here, split opinions. So obviously not talking about garments, it's talking about opinions, all right? So Paul says in the Corinthian church, they are to vocalize the same thing, and they are to, this is very important, come to the same internal opinion, okay? And these verbs are really, these commands are all present active. So understand, beloved, actively saying the same thing, actively pursuing the same opinion. Now you can almost hear the ones participating in the divisions in Corinth saying this, you mean, whoa, 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 you mean we're all supposed to line up like a bunch of ducks and all quack the same way? I mean, you want us all to be exactly the same? And, and Paul's already answered that question in a number of different places, okay? Obviously, we're not all the same. Obviously, they're not all the same. And he taught us spiritual giftedness, and he made it very clear. The Lord's given to each person according to his fa- a measure of faith. He's given some spiritual gifts combined with what, who you are that Christ has made you to be. And so Paul's answered that difference question already. And we looked at it at length when we looked at Romans 12, and you can catch up with that online if you wanna fill those gaps in. So no, they're not all supposed to be clones. They're all different and unique, but with the difference and uniqueness, he tells them, be made complete. All say the same thing, there would be no divisions among you, and then he says, be made complete. Now these things are all connected. Catartizo from the verb, be fitted for good use, be completely mended. So no schism, no tear, no rip, no rent, It really describes the mending of nets, the setting of bones, the repairing of sails, putting something back together that was torn apart. So Paul says this, perfect passive, the subject's being acted on, okay? Be made complete. So if you put it all together then, it's not a contradiction for Paul to say that they need to vocalize the same thing, that's external. And be of the same opinion, that's internal. And the sanctification process, listen, that began at salvation is active in the believer. The Holy Spirit desires to bring the church into this completeness in the lives of individuals. So, on the other side then, a schismata is incompleteness, not fitted for good use. It includes vocalizing complaints and gossiping and backbiting and, and holding on to opposite opinions and contrary attitudes. All the things that are part and parcel of schism, of tearing, okay? So completeness has sy- symptoms now. Be complete. He says, let there, there be no schismata but be made complete And then he says this. Here's a a symptom. In the same mind. Be made complete, fitted for good use. Go ahead and copy those down if you need to. In the same mind. Now, very important concept here is a symptom of being made complete. And the word mind, both mind and judgment are same root words, okay? They're just used in a different way. First one Mind here would denote thoughts, feelings, purposes, desires, things that are part of your emotions, the way that you think, the way that you process information, all that. Then it says, in the same mind, so thoughts, feelings, purposes, and desires, and then in the same judgment, same root word, and here it's denoting a particular mode of thinking and judging of thoughts and feelings and purposes and desires. So he wants the church to be one, to begin to have the same type of reaction, emotional reactions to things, and he wants them to be one in the ability to judge those reactions and bring them into subjection. So those are symptoms then of being made complete. Two words related to what goes on in the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts. So Paul tells the church here then, he says, you have division, don't do it. When you vocalize, say the same thing. Be fitted for good use by beginning to think the same way and be purposed in the same way with the same desires. That's the idea. And to come to the same conclusions then about those things. That shows that you're moving in that right direction, Paul says of this church. And once again... They really come back to a biblical pattern of leadership. Quite simply, you trust them. Okay? They're not perfect. And so as we saw in Hebrews 13, 8 and 9, you pray for them. And if there appears to be a sin issue there, you address it with them. And if it's a preference issue, certainly discuss it with them. And then you trust them. Okay? That's the way that has to be set up. you understand? And if we're going to see that Paul has to, had to deal with this in the church in Corinth, uh, they doubted him. Uh, They criticized him, they falsely accused him, they misconstrued what he said. This is not a new thing going on here as he talks to the church in Corinth. It's something he had to deal with in other churches as well. And those issues continue to plague the modern church, particularly in the Western culture, particularly in a democratic government. It's even magnified all the greater. So Paul addresses this first and he says to the church that they're to have the same opinions, they're to say the same things. And those are present tense verbs too. You're all to, he says, continually speak the same thing, to continually allow no differences of opinion to come between you, and then when you're following that, you're made complete in the perfect tense, the Holy Spirit then is at work, see? Present, active. It's at work in your life consistently, okay? So the Lord set the church up to function with a biblical pattern. He built it under the headship of Christ who is one with him. He gave it uh, to it the indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, which is one with the Father and the Son. And he gave elders to lead it. As under shepherds by the Holy Spirit. And he gave the congregation to do the work of the ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4, and be equipped for every good work in spirit-filled submission to the leaders and the elders. And he gave deacons to serve the church. And if all those things are are what they ought to be, then you can't have disunity. Whenever there's discord and disunity in the church, there's carnality. Okay? And we're going to get to that in just a minute because Paul's going to actually say that. Now, this kind of unity is tremendous. And the impact on potential ministry is amazing. And yes, it's a very big order, I agree, but God's will, uh, it goes back uh, and it tells us what, he tells us what to do, it's God's will, and uh, it goes way back uh, to Psalm 133 verse 1, it says, behold how good it is and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, all the way back there, it's like the precious oil on the head coming down the beard, even Aaron's beard, and I know that's not a great picture for us, is it? Think about oil being poured on somebody's head and dripping off their beard, ew, right? But when you think about that, think about their perspective, all right? Think about the anointing of the high priest. Think about the worship that occurred under his leadership. For them, that was a great thing. It showed the Holy Spirit was involved. It showed that the Lord was with them. And so they remind them, this is, this is exactly what the Lord desired, all right? And then he says, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. So just a watering of everything, a, a flourishing, a, a, a fruitfulness. For there the Lord commanded the blessing of life forever. In that unity, inside all that we see here, there, this is the Lord's will. All the way back, Psalm 133, verse 1. I'm sure you remember the the great section on Christian liberty in Romans 15, 5. We see the same thing Paul saying to them. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, see, Christ is one. Christ has one mind. Christ has one will. Christ has the same love for everybody. Christ feels the same about everyone else. So should you, verse 6. So that with one accord, that's internal, okay, you may be with one voice, there it is, external, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same type of teaching expressed in a different way. It's important. Paul brings it to bear as he talks about uh, how the church is to function with one another as he moves into the latter chapters of Romans uh, 15. He wants the church in Rome to think with one mind, to talk with one mouth. It's tremendously important, and not for our sake okay? Uh, Not for the sake of the ego of the congregation or the ego of the elders, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. All comes back to him. His plan. He wants unity in the church. And it's all over the New Testament. The biblical model we saw last week. You go to Ephesians 4. He says this, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, so Paul speaking of himself, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you've been called. What's that look like, Paul? I'm glad you asked. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing tolerance for one another in love. Mark this, beloved, verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want to draw something very important to your attention. Did you know, beloved, that you cannot create unity in the church? Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why do I say that? You can't create it. Because he already created it. And all you can do is destroy it. The unity of the church is already done by the Holy Spirit, do you understand? And all we can do is mess it up or maintain it. He says maintain it, keep the unity, why? Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, what is implied there? How is it possible that you can have discord? It's already given, Unity is already given to the church, and all we can do is mess it up or preserve it. And that's why Paul says, preserve it. Philippians 127, great, another great illustration. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I'll hear of you. What does it look like to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, this, that you're standing firm, mark this, in one spirit, with one mind, Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're going to get to this in just a minute. The imperative that Paul's going to lay down, what's the main thing that we need to keep the main thing above all things, and that's striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not striving against each other, not striving against leadership, not saying, well, I don't care what uh, he says, I want to do it this way, or I don't care what they say, I want to do it that way, or we used to do it this way over here, or a long time ago we did it this way, or in my other church we did it like this, okay? instead in one spirit with one mind striving together that's the potential see god's already set it up this way all we can do is mess it up now philippians 2 2 paul goes on with some thoughts and he says this and it illustrates our point very well make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose and can i tell you that's the joy of any elder that leads a church okay same mind same love united in spirit intent on one purpose love everyone alike, join in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit witnesses through our Spirit that we are God's children, so you join together, intent for kingdom building, not quarreling, not squabbling, not speaking negatively, not thinking critically, that's what Paul says next to the Philippians, he says this, he says, do nothing, do nothing, he says, only do this and do nothing then from selfishness or empty conceit But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You say, as you read that, is it really possible to have that? Yes, I really think that it is. And I really think in this church, more so maybe than any other church where I've pastored, I've seen it in reality. Now, I'm not uh, blind to the fact that there are disagreements from time to time, and I'm sure that's true but it ought not to be if it's vocal, if it's belligerent, if it's unsubmissive, it ought not to be, okay? If you have an opinion about something, you need to share it with me. That's a biblical way to go about that. Did you know that? And uh, that's the way God, And if that's the way God's leading, that's what we'll do. And that happens a lot around here, by the way, for which I'm grateful, because there's a lot of spirit-controlled people here. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Look there, if you would. Paul wasn't just making all this up, okay? There's always something behind the division and the faction and the gossip in the church. Now look at verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Stop right there. He knew there were some parties, didn't he? That there were some factions there. And this is very simple. Where did he get the information? Well, uh, as every elder enjoys from time to time, at least to know, not to hear, but to know, Chloe, apparently, uh, some prominent person in the Corinthian church who had come to see Paul in Ephesus or had sent some relative or some servant to see Paul. And what they said was, is that there were quarrels among the church. There's some undercurrent there, Paul. There's some, there's some factions. And quarrels is the noun, eris, really rever- referring to verbal strife. Uh, that is the undertow that always makes its way into conversations when there's division in the heart. And Paul would continue to address this issue on into chapter three, where he uses the word again. Now this is very important. Paul's not going to finish talking about this, uh, just because we get out of chapter one, verse 10 through 17. And chapter three, verse three, he says, "For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy, and here's the same word, strife, that that's the noun eris again, among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not just walking like mere men?" So Paul just calls it like it is. Not just silent opinions. They were being vocal about it. And Paul talked about silent opinions too, didn't he? Be of one mind, coming to the same conclusion. But here he says, look, vocal strife, it's there. So Paul says, there are quarrels among you, present active indicative. So it's not, you know, maybe there'll be quarrels about you around uh, inside the church, or maybe there's going to be some division here in the future. It's currently ha- happening right now, going on. Paul's addressing it. So what are they saying? I look at verse 12. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, on the surface, we can identify with these people. We know who they are. Paul was the first pastor of the Corinthian church. He founded it. He stayed there 18 months. Apollos, second pastor, probably the pastor during the time of this letter. So some have come to faith during his pastorate, as some came to faith during Paul's pastorate. And, uh, and so there were probably some Jews who had come to the church from the ministry of Peter. And so they, brought, they were brought to Christ under Peter's ministry. And then there were some who were just identifying with Christ. So there's the four divisions and once again this is very important please catch this okay just like when we talked in chapter 15 about weak and strong believers all right and the issue of food the issue isn't what they were divided about okay what they were divided about is not necessarily the point the point is that they were divided okay so keep that in mind they say, well, you know, if we had Paul and then Apollos and then, you know, we'd walked into the ministry of Jesus and we got, came from Peter, I mean, we would never divide about that, see? So this, it becomes a lot broader than that, doesn't it? It's not that they were divided about Paul, Apollos, and Peter, okay? That's the, not the point. The fact that they were divided. The splitting into groups had nothing to do, listen, with Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus. You can have Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and Christ and not have to split into groups, you see? The real problem, Paul says, as we saw from a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 3.3, the problem is this. You're still fleshly, for since there's jealousy and verbal strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? So he calls it just like it is for the Corinthian believers. Paul tells them, you're walking in the flesh, and it's not even a question, okay? Okay. Maybe you're walking in the flesh. Maybe this is the problem. You're in the flesh, okay? Perhaps if you apply this to yourself, you'll see you might be in the flesh from time to time. It just says, you have strife, so you are in the flesh, you see? The division, listen, just illustrates it for him. You got it? He knows they're in the flesh. The fact that there's a division just illustrates that they are, okay? And then this rhetorical question, and are you not walking like mere men? And what is the answer? Yes, you're walking just like the unredeemed. The reason they said what they said wasn't because those men were different. And so because of that, things were going on that didn't fit their personal preference. Obviously, that's the case. Okay, Obviously, Paul's ministry is different from Apollos' ministry, who's different from Peter's ministry, who's different from Jesus' ministry. Okay, And Paul doesn't even address the differences, does he? He doesn't say whose case is what and what this guy says and how he does this. He doesn't go into it. Okay, He just says the fact that there are divisions shows that you're walking in the flesh. And it doesn't matter what the division is about. Mark this, okay? The reason there was strife was because they were fleshly and acting like unredeemed people. Paul doesn't even address the difference at all. Because fleshliness is what produces faction, not spirituality, okay? Fleshliness produces faction, not spirituality. Don't let anybody fool you, because faction always comes in the form of spirituality, okay? And I put that in quotation marks. Everybody seems spiritual when they want to bring a faction. Understand that, beloved? And so I'm sure everybody had perfectly good reasons in Corinth for wanting to be under Paul's ministry or wanting to be under Paul's ministry or wanted to, to be under Peter's ministry or that they were of Christ, okay? And I want you to remember, too, that um, the people who were under Christ probably were right. All right? <laughs> Uh, and Paul doesn't bring them up again. But the problem with the people under Christ was they got pulled into the argument, didn't they? And so they get named. And just to speculate a little bit, okay, um, it's not Paul's fault, it's not Apollos' fault, it's not Peter's fault or Christ's fault, it's the fault in doing the division to begin with, and just identifying with the unredeemed. And just to speculate a little bit, Paul was the founder, uh, some perhaps were identifying with Paul, uh, they liked Paul, they liked the fact that, you know, in writ- written form he was very strong, and, and then when he was there he was very uh, humble or whatever. And perhaps then some were identifying uh, with Paul, or with Apollos, and, and he was polished and eloquent, and, as opposed to Paul who was not polished and eloquent, and so maybe they liked Apollos better, and so they identified with him. And some perhaps were saying, you know, yes, but Peter was one of the original twelve, you know, and he was from Jerusalem, he knows Judaism, so, you know, I'm of Peter, you know, he knows a lot more about the whole picture than other, the other two guys do. And maybe some of the Jewish people identified with him. And, and then some others came along and that we're of Christ. And in a sense, like I said, these folks probably were right because they ne- he never mentions the Christ party again. Uh, the Christ party had the right idea. They should have belonged to Christ. Now, there's a unity there. But they turned the belonging to Christ into a faction in the group. And so they got involved in the fight. So Paul brings them in into the admonition. And maybe they were saying, hey, we don't need human teachers. We just follow Christ, you know, and there's people like that today. You know, I don't go to church anywhere. I just open my Bible, let Christ speak to me, okay? So there, that's still available if you want to you know, buy into it. So Paul just mentions the rest of them. And even though the topic of the division uh, wasn't the issue, he still has to, duress, to address it because no matter how fleshly it was to divide, for whatever reason, he still has to deal with it. And that, no doubt, was painful to Paul because people who are fleshly say fleshly, harmful, hurtful things, Okay, and every elder who's ever served understands that. If people are fleshly and they're divided, they'll also be uh, very uh, candid and just say whatever that comes into their mind. So these parties that Paul has to deal with are probably hurting him, and we see later that they actually do, and he says some of the things that were said about him. But just by way of application, and once again, beloved, there's so many we can't cover them all. Uh, this can happen in a church, and it usually what causes splits, people have the splits, but usually have somebody or a couple of somebody's directing it. Okay? There's always somebody who's at the catalyst of making this happen, keeping it stirred up all the time, keeping the, the comments going or whatever. And Paul's going to call some of them out as he goes through the book of Corinthians. And so uh, when Paul commanded them to all say the same thing, and we illustrated that from Scripture two weeks ago as it relates to doctrine, he says, you know, let, uh, let's say a person over here begins to teach a doctrine uh, contrary to what everybody else has agreed to teach. Well, pretty soon uh, some people begin to identify with him and say, yeah, that's good. Oh yeah, I like that. No, I, I like that. That's what I'm going to follow. Okay. That's great. And you got this little group over here, you know, see, and, and this, maybe the disagreement isn't on the deity of Christ or, or the inspiration of Scripture or the sovereignty of God or, or whatever, okay? Maybe the disagreement's on a particular interpretive thing, but it's in disagreement with something that everybody else has agreed to teach. Well, pretty soon you've got these, these people latching on and you've got created this little separate entity over here, okay? That's the issue. That's also why we looked at this uh, several illustrations of saying the same thing in regard to leadership. And maybe there's somebody who says, well, you know, they decided this, but I think we ought to do it this way. Okay, and so you're going to have a few people who say, yeah, oh, well, yeah. And, and it's presented in a spiritual manner. And, and someone would undoubtedly say, well, you, sure, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. We certainly should be doing it that way. Just remember that that kind of identification, okay, that kind of expression of fleshliness is, is, is an expression of being carnal, okay, because it's a disconnection from fellowship in opinion or expression, and it drains the life out of the ministry and it drains the joy out of the ministry, and it drains the focus and the impetus to do things. So it's important to note those things, okay, and how they can apply. And once again, there's lots of application, and you may have some others that you want to talk about. Dig them up, okay? You've got the same tutor as I do and the same text as I do, and the Lord will reveal those things to you, okay? And then you know, forward those if you want to discuss them at length, okay? Now, let's, let's move on. Verse 13. We're going to finish through verse 17. Is my desire today to do that, all right? Look at verse 13, where Paul reminds the Corinthian church of some important principles, and they're very, really pretty simple, okay? He's just flat out said, without even a question, if you've, there are divisions there, if there's uh, vocal strife among you, if there's, you're not thinking the same thing, you're not saying the same thing, uh, there's, you're, you're carnal, and he just reminds of a very important principle that they're skipping over. Look at verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Stop right there. So Paul starts out with a universal principle. And what is it? Is Christ divided? And what's the answer? No. Okay, so it's, they skipped over a very important principle which you already called on in the fellowship of Jesus Christ earlier on in, in uh, just a few uh, ch- uh, verses ago. He's saying as he looks at disunity in the church, it violates a basic principle. Okay, 1 Corinthians six seventeen illustrates that principle. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So if you've joined yourself to the Lord in salvation, and you're one spirit with him and one spirit with everybody else who has. Ephesians 4 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We read that just a minute ago. One God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's unity there in Christ. Is Christ divided? He is not. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And we're going to look at that as it relates to spiritual gifts later on. Is Christ divided? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul says the basic premise you're completely running over is the fact that Christ isn't divided. Paul says if we're all one in Christ, then we're all one with each other, and so there can be no division in the body of Christ, and that's, uh, that's not a violation of our very basic nature, you see? Whatever, that's why I say, it doesn't matter what the topic was. It wasn't Paul and Apollos and Cephas and, and Christ. The fact that there was division was the problem, okay? And so that's a violation of the very basic nature of all those who are in Christ. Paul says, look, you can't have these groups. You're in violation of the basic principle. Is Christ divided? No, he's not. And then Paul really does a great thing here. And I love this. In verse 13, he says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul. And here's and this is very cool, all right, as, and I read that and you probably picked it up. Notice he, he uses himself as the example and not Apollos and not Peter, okay? So he doesn't get pulled into the argument, does he? He doesn't even address the argument. He just says, there's a principle you're violating. And he doesn't talk about Apollos, he doesn't talk about what Peter said, or he doesn't get involved with it. You know, and if he would have, and on the other side, if he would have said Apollos or Peter, it's likely someone would have said, see, even Paul knocks Apollos, See, I'm right. Or see, Paul's knocking Peter. See, I'm right. He's calling Peter on the carpet. Peter wasn't crucified for it. Paul doesn't even get into it, does he? Just says, was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And Here's the thing. Paul may not have even known what the other guys had said. Chloe may not have filled him in. He might not even know what they said, if anything. And once again, it didn't matter. It just matters if what was vocalized was part of a faction. So he just uses himself. Are you going to stand up and say I was a sinner until Paul died for me? Your union isn't with me. It's with him. He's the one. Okay? And once again, just to apply this, if you under, undercurrent in the church, it's always started and carried on by someone. From, you know, it's a different someone usually, but from time to time it's someone. Okay? And if, if Paul comes into the situation then, okay? Do you think it's safe to say, Paul would say, was, you fill in the gap, okay, whoever, you know, over the past in your time in church, this person who always had some undercurrent, something that he disagreed with or she disagreed with about what was going on, Paul would say, was this person crucified for you? And that really makes it bad, doesn't it? That's like, ooh, I don't, I don't want my name in, that, in, those, in those brackets. No, they weren't. Because that's Paul's point. It's not what what they said, all right? The fact that they said it out loud, the fact that they thought it and continued to think it in opposition to what leadership said or whatever was going on. That's the problem. Was this person crucified for you? No. Were Were you baptized in the name of this person? No. it becomes really sticky then when it gets real, okay? Paul just brings them back to the basic principle. He asks, who's the head of the church? And what's the answer? Christ. To whom is your allegiance? What's the answer? Christ. How does Christ minister through the church? through godly leaders and submissive congregations. When you're disconnected, you're in violation of the unity that's in Christ. You see, the principle does not allow for, for this unless you're going to violate the principle, you see. It's just unity in Christ. You violate the principle, then you begin to walk there in a fleshly manner. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the ruling. See, you have an elder or an elder trying to lead. You have deacons trying to serve and help, and you're going to have some people who are unruly. Not, that means they just won't submit to the rule. They won't submit to the leadership. They have their own ideas. They have their own opinions. They have their own preferences. They're vocalizing them. They're not saying the same thing. They're not thinking the same thing. They're not coming to the same conclusions. Okay? Just, just fall, all of them fall into the same category. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Okay? Paul says they have no right to do that, and you who are submitting are to go to them and do what? Admonish them. Warn them. Romans 15, 16 says to turn away from them. And that's what he's trying to do right here in the church in Corinth. So it's a pretty practical instruction, and it falls right in line with everything else Paul has said. Now let's go to the one thing that Paul refocuses them on, the imperative, the essential thing, and we've seen it already in some of our illustrations. So I think you know where we're going. Verse 14, look there. I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus. Now that was the first ruler of the synagogue and, and the one who he stayed with, Remember? Paul says, I'm done with you Jews, and he walks down the street to the first house on the left and goes in there and stays 18 months, all right? So it must have really been irritating to the Jews in the synagogue. So this is Christmas. He baptized Christmas. And Gaius, and uh, we're not sure who this is. There are a number of different options. It's really not important for today's discussion. Uh, but it's Gaius in the church, somebody, w- they would know, okay? Verse 15, so that no one would say, you were baptized in my name. Paul says, I know my main concern, okay? And it's not baptizing people. So that no one would say that I baptized them to make them my followers, and just as a footnote, that was pretty common in New Testament practice. If you remember, Peter in Cornelius' house, he just commanded them to be baptized, didn't he? He didn't go and baptize them himself. And John tells us that Jesus didn't baptize anybody either, but he told everybody to be baptized and he gave his disciples uh, that option, and, and of course it's carried right on. So, see what he's thinking? He purposely let somebody else do it so they wouldn't identify with him. He wasn't trying to build a party around himself, so he reminds them of that. Listen, the basic premise you're overlooking is that Christ isn't divided. So if there's division, then you're not in fellowship with Christ. And the second part is, listen, that's not the main thing anyway, okay? Whatever you're arguing about, whether they baptized you or whatever the faction was, it doesn't matter. And uh, they can't accuse him of building a party around himself. And then it's like he's sitting there, and then I love this, he, he's dictating this letter, you know, someone else is writing it down, and something else comes to his mind, okay? He didn't remember that he baptized, you know, another person. So it shows how accurate than he wants to be and of course he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings you know uh, if he, paul doesn't remember he baptized someone even though it wasn't important so he's going to say well he must not really love me because he doesn't remember he even baptized me you know that kind of thing so paul remembers something else okay and so the holy spirit brings it to him look at verse 16 so he's riding along he says he, he's the people i baptized you know i baptized Crispus and gaius and then all of a sudden it's like whoa oh. now i did baptize also the household of stephanus okay uh, that beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. So some hurt feelings, obviously, probably if there's factions, they'll just fall right in with that. Oh, he doesn't remember he baptized me. Well, he doesn't remember. Okay. Now, I think this is important that he almost forgot. Let's see. You know, besides that, you know, I can't think of anybody else. And in case you were thinking, you know, Bible writers are supposed to know everything. This gives us an insight on inspiration. I'll just say this as a footnote, okay, really quickly. Biblical inspiration, mark this, ensures infallibility of the author, not as omniscience. Okay, so Paul can say, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. It just shows the honesty that's there, okay? Paul's not pretending to know everything. He just carries, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he writes down what he, what he knows and how the Holy Spirit directs him to write. So this is what the Holy Spirit wanted him to put down. He says, I baptized Crispus, I baptized Gaius, uh, the household of Stephanas, and uh, let's see, I can't think of anybody else. And that's what the Holy Spirit wanted him to say, and so that's the conclusion of his memory. So in essence, he says, you know, I'm glad I didn't because, you know, somebody would have accused me of, you know, making a party after myself, and, and that's not the essential thing. And then we see what is the essential thing in verse 17, and with this we're going to close. All right, look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I'll stop right there. And that's what we saw was the result of unity in Philippians 1.27, standing firm one spirit with one mind. What did it say? Striving together, right? For the faith of the gospel. So he implies then, you read my commission, right? Acts 26, 16 through 18. He didn't tell me to baptize. That wasn't the major point of it, was it? Sure. Matthew 28, it says, go and preach and teach and baptize. And so it's part of the great commission. So baptizing follows along after, as long as the essential thing is being done, which is the essential thing, beloved, giving out the gospel building the church by giving out the gospel, okay? It's all about that. That's how the church grows, all right? So we wouldn't keep up with the baptisms if we were all filled with all speech and giving out the gospel on a regular basis, all right? So it just comes back to what Paul's already said. Baptism isn't the main thing. It is important. We're commanded to do it, and we do. The main thing is, though, is to go and preach the gospel. Remember, acts, and just, I'll look there quickly because we actually have a minute here. Paul in his commission, he, he says in Acts 26, 16, I have appeared to you, Jesus is talking to him, to appoint you as a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, in which I will appear to you. Verse 17, rescuing you uh, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. Verse 18, open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. What's the essential thing in Paul's commission? That he give the gospel so that people's eyes may be opened and they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion of Satan to God and may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. That's the main thing. Paul says the main thing isn't baptizing. The fact that you're divided about this or any other issue just shows you're walking like mere men, you're still fleshly. He says don't do that. Be of the same mind, say the same thing come to the same conclusions, evaluate your emotions and bring them into subjection. The essential thing is to build a church. That's it. Not make followers of man. And that's why he says, not in cleverness of speech. I didn't speak to you cleverly. I didn't speak to you in some way that drew you to me because of me. He says, I gave you the gospel and I baptized a few people, but I can't remember if I baptized anybody else, but that wasn't the important thing anyway. His main desire was not be that people would speak like they're speaking now. I'm a Paul follower. It was the whole point of his emphasis, that he would avoid that. And that's exactly where they ended up. And his essential thing is the example to the church at Corinth. It should be in the church to work, to serve the Lord, to do his will, not to create or promote or continue dissension. The imperative is to honor him and to preach his truth and walk in the Spirit and not in fleshliness. And as that goes, it puts power into ministry and people, and they see a blessed unity that will magnify the Lord and that will draw to him those people who are coming to Christ. So that's the priority, Paul says. It doesn't matter what the division's about. The fact that there is one is the problem. The fact that you're not saying the same thing, the fact that you're not speaking the same thing, the fact that you're not coming to the same conclusions, that you're not bringing yourself in to be made complete, to be acted on by the Holy Spirit, bringing you into subjection. And it could be our prayer that it may be true of this church, uh, beloved, as Paul wanted it to be true of the church in Corinth, that we are one with him in what we say and what we think, that he may be honored. That's our desire. Let's bow in prayer and be dismissed together. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for being able to cover this uh, portion of scripture as Paul begins his interaction with this church and he starts with this most important thing course as we evaluate it perhaps we would evaluate it immorality or you know taking each other to court or you know not understanding true faith or whatever as more important Paul starts here for here's where the testimony of the church lies here's where the joy of the ministry resides here's where a unity and a oneness of mind can produce great results in big or small churches but those who are spiritual those who understand what your word says are going to have to rein in those who don't and Lord, I pray as you accomplish your will, no doubt in the church in Corinth, you will accomplish your will in every church that reads these passages and understands what they say. It is our desire that we not be divided, that Christ is not divided, and so we won't don't want to violate the basic principle that starts this whole understanding of what true unity is. Thank you for the joy of serving here. Thank you for the many who are so faithful, who submit and come under authority and find ministries and work under the radar and just do the things that. Uh, bring about the kingdom purposes. Thank you for uh, groups that went out yesterday with Awana kids and, and took them home and encouraged them and blessed them and, and uh, built disciples. And thank you for those who meet uh, on off days and, and are counseled and, and discipled. And thank you for those who teach, even small, small groups. And don't despair, but bring the gospel clearly and bring the word clearly so that people can grow. And thank you for all those things. Thank you for faithful givers and faithful workers who give and do those things because they know Christ is not divided. Thank you for the blessing that is Berean. I pray that you encourage us all the more to do these things as we see the day approaching. And we give you praise today. And all God's people said, Amen.